Let's talk about what Build is all about. We are um, trying to take the men of the church and we're trying to unite the men of the church around some key spiritual leadership disciplines um, that will make a man stronger, spiritually speaking, make him into a godly man, a man who is near to Christ um, through these spiritual disciplines. Uh, you're, you're, there's, there's no relationship that you have that gets better and gets stronger by you doing nothing, right? Relationships don't get better, don't get stronger when you do nothing. And the same is true with your relationship with the Lord. You need to have spiritual disciplines in your life to continue to grow your relationship with the Lord. And these are um, some of them that will help you to do that. And then some of the disciplines go beyond even that kind of thing and and just train you to be a, a man who can handle God's word well and be connected and qualified for leadership in this church. So number one. First thing we want you to be focusing on um, as a believer in Jesus Christ, because of the gospel in you, is we want you to shepherd your heart. And by that we mean um, shepherd your heart to God's word so that you might know him and grow that relationship with him. Um, the, the word of God is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to a glorious end who is God, Right? So you want to be in God's Word, not to just merely check off a box uh, to study and, and present your lesson for whatever it is that you have to teach for. You don't want to be in the Word of God merely for that. You want to be in the Word of God so that you are knowing Him, growing in your love for Him, fearing Him, enjoying Him, delighting in Him, um, obeying Him. So uh, we want to encourage you to be thinking about God's Word that way. Throughout the day, you need to be shepherding your heart to God's Word so that when the, your boss asks you to do something that is absolutely unreasonable from your perspective, you're, you're thinking rightly um, about it through the lens of God's Word and you're maintaining your fellowship with God throughout the day um, or, or, or whatever the situation might be for you. So you want to shepherd your heart to the Word of God in order to know the God of the Word. If you become that kind of a man... Everything else will follow. Everything else will follow that needs to take place in a Christian man's life. Um, if you get married, you're going to be a, a very marriable kind of man. Um, any guy with a, any father with a daughter would look at a man like that and say, "Please, daughter, marry that kind of man. Uh, draw near to that kind of guy. I'll kick you out of my house, daughter. You can leave and cleave to that one. That would be a great thing." Um, if you're not that kind of man, that makes a, a father of a daughter nervous. Because you may have right answers, you may be a sharp guy, you may be persuasive and charismatic in your personality, but if there's not a relationship with God there that's growing, um, daughters beware. Okay? Beyond that, becoming a father, you're going to be equipped to be a father. Yes, there are specific things you need to know about parenting, but the most important thing for parenting... You guys split up already. Was there a problem? Well, I, we were <laughs> I love it. So you took the, so you just moved the problem. Warning, warning over to that table now. Um, there are specifics you need to know about parenting, but what makes you the best parent you can be is that you're a god or a god. You're a man who knows God uh, well. You're growing in your relationship with Him. Um, so this is something you do not want to play leapfrog over. You don't want to skip over your heart. Number two, second discipline. The first place of impact that you want to have as that kind of man is your household. 
Um, you don't want to leave your roommates, you don't want to leave your parents, you don't want to leave your wife, your children in the dust as you go out and care for all other kinds of people. Um, the church is full of men who have done that and have left a train wreck of problems behind them. So take what you are as a man of God and push it into your household and discipline yourself to care for those people in your household well first. The third discipline then is when you do step out into ministry in the church or outside the church in evangelism. If you step into ministry, you will be a man of integrity. There, people will look at you and as they get to know you, they will say, this is a man who knows God and what he is in his home and what he's like outside his home is the same thing. This guy is, has integrity. Um, so you don't want to just leapfrog over your heart and your home to get to ministry with people and lead Bible studies and neglect your heart and neglect your home. You want to work on these things that will only strengthen your ministry that you have with people at work, um, out in whatever it is that you do. Um, the fourth discipline is we want to discipline, have you become disciplined in focusing yourself on leadership characteristics and qualities in 1 Timothy 3. Primarily deacon first and then also elder. Guys, every single one of you should be praying something like, God, make me into a qualified man. Um, I want to be a godly man for your sake. And, and I put these character qualifications for deacon and elder in front of me before you. And you do with me what you want. God, make me into a qualified man. Does that mean that you'll become an elder someday? Maybe, maybe not. But it means that you're going to be a godly man, a qualified man in character. Um, and, but that doesn't happen just on its own. Guys don't, you know, just not think about that for 10 years and then wake up 10 years later and find themselves qualified. This is a, this is a discipline. Um, you need to discipline yourself to bring yourself before these character qualifications and measure yourself by them. Uh, the fifth discipline is the one that we're on, uh, did last week, and we're going to finish up today, and that's the hermeneutic. Um, we want you to be disciplined in the way that you think about handling God's word, how you interpret it. Um, the hermeneutic means the rules for interpreting Scripture. We're going to walk through 12 of them today. Um, and what we think at Grace Bible Church is the right way to interpret Scripture. So um, that's something you've got to work at the rest of your life. Um, and it's not difficult. It's not impossible. In fact, you already have a, 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 you operate by a good hermeneutic in common language, in just communication. And we'll try to keep drawing that back to uh, your attention as we go through hermeneutics. Because you can think of that and go, oh, hermeneutics, that's something that, isn't that what you do in like seminary? Isn't that like theolo theologians do that? Um, well, actually more theologians need to do that. Um, but you do it um, already. You're, you're a hermeneutic or whatever. You're, you're, you're somebody who practices hermeneutics every day um, because you rely on words and you want people to understand what you say. So we'll talk about that more today. And then lastly, the, the last discipline is we want you to be disciplined about these things at Grace Bible Church. So you need to know the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. Our vision is Trinitarian. We're setting our sights on the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, which results in a transformed life by the Spirit. And then being that kind of a Christian moves us into a gospel purpose that's threefold. We want to draw in, build up, and send out with the gospel. And so that's what we're focusing on here at Grace Bible Church. We want you to apply that wholeheartedly here. So there's your disciplines. Um, you'll hear that one more time from us next uh, time we're together, two weeks from now. Uh, and just so that you know, two weeks from now, um, we'll all be meeting together with the ladies. 
And we'll have one big build slash wellspring morning and Smed will be here and he'll be teaching you guys. And I asked him to uh, do uh, Revelation 2 on the church at Ephesus and how the church had left its first love. Um, that is, um, his message on that is, is phenomenal. Um, it'll, it's very humbling and encouraging that we would not lose our first love. So he's going to really focus back in on discipline one again. Um, that discipline one is to make sure that you don't lose your first love, who is Jesus. Okay? All right, so what we're going to do this morning, is there a clock in here somewhere? There's one on my phone. Here's one. 712, wow. Okay, we're only going to meet for 20 to 25 minutes because last time I didn't get to go through very much. There was a whole lot of commotion going on in Barnes, and I, I'd apologize to any of you if you noticed that I was distracted and even exasperated a little bit. The table's being rolled out in drama stuff going on. Um, I just wanted to be finished and let you guys go. So anyway, I need more time today. Okay, so this is going to be the marathon one today. You're, I know your mind can only endure what the backside of you can endure, but we're going to push that to the limits today, okay? Let me pray, and then we'll let you guys do a small groups together, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for bringing these men here. Lord, help us to think um, carefully about these spiritual disciplines. I pray, Lord, that as we go into our discussion groups, that we would care well for each other, we would listen well, we would... Um, participate in one another's lives in a way that would be pleasing to you and helpful to one another. And when we come back together, God, help us to think through carefully how to interpret your word. There are no more important words in all of the universe than these that we have in this book before us. And we pray, God, that you would help us to think carefully about them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to pick back up where we left off last time. Um, last time we basically covered page one, the presuppositions. So I'm not going to go back through those presuppositions. We're going to kind of pick up with section one then, principles for interpreting scripture. And as we uh, jump into these things and think about these things, let's pray again and let's ask God to be with us, meet with us, and um, give us right thinking about how to interpret scripture. Let's pray. Father, we do want to think rightly about words and what they mean we use them all day long, and there's so much that we assume from one another in our words that we just we don't even have to think about how we interpret. We just do. Um, we just interpret one another. And we, we know what it means to be authors of words. We formulate words in our mind, and we speak them out, and we want people to think carefully about our words and get the meaning that we communicated. And we know what it's like to be a hearer or a reader, too, and hear words and interpret them. And Lord, I, I pray that we would um, remind ourselves that um, you, your Son, is the Word who became flesh. That the idea of words and communication is bound up in your being. It's bound up in your personhood as God. And that you are the author of words and Lord, we just humble ourselves and we come back under your words and we want to think rightly about how we should interpret them. Um, everything for our salvation and our sanctification rides on us, depends upon us, understanding your word rightly. 
So, and interpreting it carefully. So meet with us. Help us to think carefully about these things this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's probably no better way to talk, uh, start off with than to think about wrong ways in which to interpret Scripture. So I'm going to give you two wrong ways here. Uh, the first is the allegorical method of interpreting Scripture. And then the other, um, another one, what it means to me method. Uh, you're actually influenced uh, by both of these probably more than you know it. Um, when it comes to the Bible. And, and here's what I want you to write at the top of your page. Um, controlling line of authority. CLA. The controlling line of authority. Just write that at the top of that p- page there somewhere in section one. Principles for interpreting scripture. Because this is what you must be looking for. What is the controlling line of authority in these words? In the meaning. What's the controlling line of authority? That is the key question that will reveal the heart of what one's method is all about in interpreting words. And and you'll see what we're talking about in each of these. An allegorical method. An allegory is a story in which the people and the events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings or even spiritual meanings. Those who interpret the Bible allegorically bypass the clear historical meaning of the text, and they make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and persons or events in the text. Let me give you an example from one of the early church fathers. One church father interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. Remember the story, right? Here's his allegorical interpretation of the Good Samaritan. The traveler who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. Didn't you know that? That's what that means. Um... And the robbers represent Satan. Didn't you know that? Was that clear to you as you read that parable of the Good Samaritan? And um, naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and the wine the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. And the donkey is the gospel. Just remember that the donkey is the gospel. Just don't say that over and over in your mind. Um, that was the, because that was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church. Now, this is not a joke. This is actually the way early Christians thought and interpreted the Bible. Some of them. Okay? Um, so you can see the key for understanding that story is not rooted in the words of the story. You have to go outside of the story to something else and unlock the real meaning. Because the end isn't the end. It's the church. Now, there's nothing in the words of that parable that would make you come to that conclusion. You have to go outside of it. Because where's the controlling line of authority for what it means in that kind of interpretation? Is it embedded in the words of the text? Or is it embedded somewhere outside of the words in his imagination? Yeah, obviously, right? So this is where I say, ask yourself when you hear things like that, where's his controlling line of authority? Is it in the words of the text or is it outside the words of the text? Spiritualizing it away. Um, So although Jesus taught the parable to answer a specific question, who must I love as my neighbor? That's ignored by this. The church father found, quote unquote, a deeper mystical Not readily apparent meaning for the passage by means of imaginative association. So, 
Here's an evaluation of the allegorical method. It actually obscures the true meaning. It's not helping. Um, it's not helping to come to the meaning. It's obscuring the true meaning of God's word by ignoring what the writer actually said. God put the controlling line of authority for those words in the text, and the allegorical method says, I'm not interested in that as the controlling line of authority. I'll establish my own controlling line of authority of what it means. Since the plain sense of the text is ignored, there's no means of checking whether an allegorical interpretation is true or not. Did you know that? If he says the donkey is the gospel, what if somebody else comes up with a different idea of what the donkey is? How do you check which one's right? It doesn't matter because the controlling line of authority is not rooted in anything authoritative, but in the imagination of, of the interpreter. And then allegorical interpretation, the third bullet point there, it actually tells you more about the interpreter's imagination, doesn't it? Then it tells you about what God's Word says. Um, watch out for people who spiritualize texts where you actually have to leave the text to figure out what the spiritual meaning actually really is. Be careful of that. Watch for that. Don't do it yourself either. Um, number two, what it means to me or the neo-orthodox method. This method of, comes in two packages. There's a scholarly version of it and then there's the more popular one that we probably hear and, and deal with. So we'll talk about the scholarly one first or the neo-orthodox. It's called the reader response method. Um, of interpreting scripture. And it's based on a particular view of the Bible. Um, modern theologians, often many of them, don't actually believe the Bible is all of those presuppositions we said last time, that it's infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself actually is God's word. Um, what these um, neo-orthodox or reader-response guys think is actually, it's, it's merely a record of how men in ages past experienced God. That's what God's word is. It's a record of how men experienced God in the past. And therefore, it's not binding, it's suggestive to you. It's a suggestion of how God um, met and, and, and how man experienced in him in the past. But it's not authoritative in our day. Your experience of God might be different than what Moses' experience of God was, or Peter's. And so, for the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible actually isn't God's Word. That's where it's starting from. It's a denial that God's Word is actually God's Word. But guess what? It becomes God's Word when you have a significant experience while reading it. That's what's going on in the, in the, in the scholarly academic side of this. It, it doesn't become God's word until you have an experience with it. And now it, it validates it as God's word. So where's the controlling line of authority? In the words or in the reader? In the reader. See, ask the question, where's the controlling line of authority for meaning? And it will give it away every single time where it's at. Truth is not the concern. That is different for every person, they would say. The issue is how the words strike you as you read them. What the original author wrote is merely a tool that assists you in shaping your own concept of God and how to please Him. This view of God's Word is very popular in today's postmodern, everybody is right, nobody is wrong academic atmosphere. This is very much at the uh, institutional level. Send your kids off to college, this, you need, they need to be prepared to, to 
knock this down at every stage. And it's really easy because all you have to do as a freshman in a big class where it's teaching this kind of thing is just stand up and say, uh, Professor, I promise to do the same with your words, that they won't mean anything to me until they strike me and I will ignore your words. I just want to apply what you're teaching. Just say that to them and class will get dismissed early, probably that day. Okay? Because nobody wants their words dealt with that way. What parent ever says anything and says, son, when my words strike you, let me know. No. I'll strike you before my child. Um, anyway. Cut that out. <laughs> um, so this method of interpretation is also spread on a popular level where we live more so. If you interact with uh, commentaries, um, read theological books, you're going to have to wade through some of this junk with people, be, uh, with certain authors because they're going to be dealing with these kinds of things. It's more at the, the academic level. But then there's this popular level where we all live, uh, a different little version of it. And, and it's more re- reflected in the motto, well, what this verse means to me is, you ever heard that? Christians all together. Well, what this verse means to me is, so God's intent is not the concern. God's intent in the text is not the concern. The historical theological context is actually irrelevant. The only thing that really matters is how it immediately and intuitively strikes the reader. So you get a bunch of Christians together reading it, and it starts, you know, we start lobbing at one another. Well, what it means to me is, and what it means to me is, see, it's the same kind of version. It's, it's too much emphasis on the reader and not enough on the author. And so it still gives away where the controlling line of authority is. Oftentimes in, in such circles like this, diligent study is, is frowned upon. That you would actually like dig into the Bible and really know it. Christians would frown upon that, who go by this. Because what matters is just that we have it open and we're all kind of responding to whatever it is that's going on in us. So what it means to me um, is what matters. An unstudied response determines the meaning. Just beware of Christians who are, are, are impressed with an unstudied response. Um, so how would we uh, evaluate this? It's based on an errant view of the Bible. Uh, the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility. At the academic level it is. I think there's a lot of Christians who are in this what it means to me thing and they're not denying inerrancy. They, they haven't thought that far. Um, so you have to be really careful to not conflate the two and, and make them... Uh, that the popular level is just as guilty of certain things at the academic level. Uh, the Bible is divine truth, not suggestive, non-authoritative human experiences. That's a problem with this. But that's not to say that at the popular level it's not dangerous. I, I wouldn't want you to walk away and say, oh, well, at the academic level, this way of interpreting is dangerous, but at the popular level it's not. No, it is. There are implications from this that are huge. Um, and these methods, third bullet point, fail to recognize that the intent of the original author, author is what determines the meaning of a document. And there's an illustration here. The memo means what the boss who wrote it says it means, right? That's what it means. What the Bible meant to the human authors as God's Spirit moved them to write is what the Bible means. We don't impose our meaning on what God said. We work to discover the meaning he initially and internally, eternally intended. Can you imagine your kids sitting around um, after you've been talking to them, maybe exhorting them, admonishing them? Can you imagine them sitting around and saying, well, what what, what Dad's word means to me is... And then Junior says, well, no, no, actually, what what Dad's word means to me is... Can you imagine? Can you imagine your boss hearing his employees say, well, what the boss 
meant to you know what his words meant to me was i mean we would never tolerate such a thing on our level with our words but what do we do as christians with god's word you see you're you're already an interpreter and you're sharp you know just think about how you want your words dealt with and how you deal with people's words and then make sure you grant the same courtesy to god right um so always ask yourself again where's the controlling line of authority and who do you ask you ask the author. If you hear a husband say um, about his wife, um, my wife's love for me is, is like a rose. And you say, you know, I was just trimming my roses and I got cut all the time. I get, kept getting pricked by the thorns. So your wife's love is, is thorny to you? Is that what, I, I understand. That's, 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 it must be tough being you. <laughs> well, no, the, you, you don't do it that way. What he meant by it is you'd have to ask him, what did you mean by that? Um, or you could say, you know, yeah, the roses, my roses just burned up in the heat. They, they don't last long, do they? So your wife's love for you, it, it came and it went. No, what, what, did, what did he mean? Where's the controlling line of authority for meaning? It's not in the reader. It's in the author's words. And that's the way you like it, right? And that's the way I like it when we speak. Um, just as a, as a side note, um, you can um, just think about the way Christians are, are handling Genesis 1 these days. Okay, where is the controlling line of authority for meaning? Is it actually in Genesis 1 with the words and what they say, or are Christians listening to a controlling line of authority outside of Genesis 1 in another body of thinking called science? And imposing that controlling line of authority, well, Genesis 1 can't mean six literal days, or is the controlling line in the text itself. So you can just ask yourself that question, it'll help you a lot. So here's the right way, carefully and normally. Carefully and normally. The right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 <laughs> commands that we be careful readers of God's word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Um, so while not forgetting its unique characteristics, that it is the God-breathed word, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Interpretation is not a magical or mysterious process by any means. It's just reading carefully and normally. It's not looking for a fanciful, allegorical, or personal meaning. Let me give you an example. Psalm 19, verse 10, um, the psalmist says, David says, Your judgments are sweeter than honey. But I'm, an, I'm allergic to honey, so I avoid anything that's an irritant to me like that. So God's judgments are something that I should avoid. That's stupid, right? I mean, you would look at that and just go, that's ridiculous. Um, that would be an interpretation based on my experience, and I'd be imposing that on the text. Um, it's not always going to be that stupid. It's going to be much more subtle. But just ask yourself, coming back, it, it was that careful? Is that the normal way we go about language and interpreting? Um, think carefully about that. We need to be um, men who um, are always asking, looking for grace from God to handle the divine message like a carpenter who measures twice and cuts once. Have you ever done that? Or not done that? Measure once, hurry. Oh. Next time, what do you do? Measure twice, 
cut once, right? So be careful with God's word. And we're going to go through 12 principles. Now, I can't remember, guys, last time, for those of you who are here, did I have you write down three words, literal, grammatical, historical? Okay, let me do it one more time for anybody who wasn't here. There are three key words you need to write down because that's what this is. Okay, off to your left, write the word literal. Give yourself a little space and then write grammatical in the middle and then over towards the right, write historical. Okay, literal, grammatical, historical. That is our, interp- that's our hermeneutic. We use the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation for in- interpreting scripture. And I'll tell you what each of those three words mean. Okay, you ready? If you want to, underneath literal, you can write down the words. The words. Okay, so you've got literal. What does that mean? It means the words. What does grammatical mean? Sounds like something scary from ninth grade diagramming or something. And it is. It's exactly what it is. But it's, so it's the words in relationship to one another. What does grammatical mean? The words in relationship to one another. Okay? What does historical mean? In their context. In their context. Now, so here's the sentence underneath those three words. The words in relationship to one another in their context, in their setting, right? And this, guys, is not something new to you that you think, oh my goodness, my head's going to explode theologically and I'm not going to understand this. No, this is what you already do. You already do this with your own words. You expect everybody who's listening to you to do this with your words. And when you listen to other people, this is what you do with their words. You listen to people's words in their relationship to one another in the setting they're in. That's what you do. This is just the normal, careful use of language and words, okay? And we're going to give you 12 principles that flesh this out, okay? Are you ready? Number one, the clarity of Scripture. Scripture's clear. Um, the fancy word for this is perspicuity. But you don't need to write that down. You can write that down in H3. Um, the clarity of Scripture. The Bible can be understood. Why can the Bible be understood? Because God meant to be understood. When was the last time you communicated with the sole purpose of being not understood? I didn't say that you were understood by people, but when did you ever communicate with the intent to not be understood? This is the way we are as as communicators. We communicate to be understood. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to, um, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That's what Moses said. God revealed so that we would understand well enough that we could observe, Moses says. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, admits that Paul is hard to understand sometimes, right, in some of the things that he writes. That doesn't mean everything, because God intended to communicate clearly and be understood. It doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything, because some things are very difficult to understand. However, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 indicates, God revealed his word to be understood and lived. The revealed things, the words of the law, are ours. That means we study God's word expecting to discover 
a coherent message. That should be your thought every time you come to God's Word. I come to this expecting a coherent message. Why? Uh, at one level, because every time you speak, you expect your people who are listening to you to also come to a coherent message. This is the way we are as communicators. And how much more so God, who is flawless in his communication, right? So when we do come across theologically obscure passages, the ones that are difficult to understand, we give precedence to the clear sections of Scripture that address that issue. And well, there's another whole principle of interpreting that will address that. So guys, when was the last time you communicated so as to not be understood? Even when you're trying to deceive people and you're trying to be evasive, you're being very clear in what you're communicating. Right? We're always clear. Except when something is not right with the mind and there's just jumbled words and doesn't make sense. And we know that something's really wrong, don't we? Outside of all those times, we always communicate to be clear. And when was the last time you were not eager to be understood when you spoke? Did you ever, like, speak at one point and you're like, it doesn't really matter to me if she understands what I say or not? No. We were eager for people to understand us. So we grant this principle to ourselves when we, when we speak all day long. We just need to extend to God the same courtesy, right? Um, clarity of Scripture, number two. And you guys can interrupt anytime you want. You can ask questions. You can obviously um, get up and down and make yourself at home, right? I'm, I'm going to keep plowing. just want you to know that you can be free to get up and down as you need. Number two, the accommodation of revelation. That means God accommodates himself, um, accommodates what he's revealing to us, right? God revealed his truth in terms that human beings can understand. For example, the scripture was written in well-known human languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's called accommodation. God didn't pick some obscure, tiny, 150-person tribe language to reveal his truth in that all of the rest of the world would have this difficult time learning to get. He, he wrote it in actually very well-known, understandable, common languages, languages that were on the bottom shelf that any man could come and get a hold of. Koine Greek in the New Testament. Hebrew and Aramaic spoken all the way across the Mediterranean, uh, Middle Eastern world at that time. Um, so that's accommodation from God. When it speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms that we can relate to. That's called accommodation. For example, Second Corinthians or Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles sixteen nine says God's eyes move throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father, a spirit being, has physical eyes. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses. Therefore, He describes His infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means God stoops to our level, describing himself in ways that we can understand. And let me ask you this. As a parent or as somebody who works in in, uh, next generation ministries and you're teaching the little ones, when you accommodate yourself to their language level and you get down on their level and you speak in their vocabulary the truth of the gospel... Do you do that with the intent to obscure the message or to make it clear? You do it to be clear, right? You're accommodating yourself. So accommodation is for the purpose of being understood, right? So when God accommodates himself, it's not to obscure things. He's not trying to be difficult by saying, 
well, look, I really don't have eyes, but okay, my eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. He's not trying to obscure the message. He's making it more clear. Okay? So accommodation is, is I think, very closely tied to clarity of Scripture. Number three, one meaning of a text. Although a text may have different, many different applications, it has only one meaning. The meaning of the original human author moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. Okay? Guys, this is huge. There's not, you have to be careful the way you talk about meaning and application. Okay? Uh, but there's only one meaning of a text. Consider, for example, the command, do not steal. You can take that from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, or you can take it from uh, Ephesians 4, the New Testament. For the ten-year-old, now I want you to circle some words here, okay? For the ten-year-old, that might apply, circle the word apply. That might apply to shoplifting a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply, circle the word apply, to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Those are two different applications. Circle that word, applications. So you've got three applications words circled, right? However, there is only one meaning. Put a square around that or circle that one too. Um, so did you see there, there's multiple applications, but there's how many meanings? One and only one. Right? Um, don't take something that is not yours and not yours to use in that way. That's one meaning. Now, that's from a, an imperative from Mosaic Law and an imperative for the church um, in the New Testament. What about Old Testament prophecy? Only one meaning? I mean, really, come on. Only one meaning? If I pushed you to the wall and made you have to scout's honor or whatever it is, I don't know what it is anymore. Is that Girl Scouts? That's, that could be bad. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody did it back there. It's, it's lodged in my memory somewhere. If I pushed you to the wall and said, Old Testament prophecy, really? One meaning? What would you say? Yeah. One meaning. When, when, do you, when do you ever communicate and you have two meanings that are equally true at both times or true for five days but then no longer true and now it means something else? When do you ever communicate that way? The only way that you can change your meaning is by writing new revelation, <laughs> writing new, revealing new thoughts from you that you would actually say that doesn't mean that. And you would prove yourself to be fallible. Because you communicated something that is not true anymore. Yes? Yeah. <clears throat> We're going to talk about that in number eight. I think people are sloppy between their understanding of the word application and meaning and or interpretation. And we'll try to sort those, those words out. I think sometimes we use them interchangeably in ways that is just really not helpful. Um, we'll talk about that. It's good. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, Kyle. Does that work if there's If there is, yeah, that, that, would be a, that would be the first question that I would ask myself. Is, is, that, is that what, um, that's, that's, let me gather my thoughts before I try to open my mouth. Um, 
That is a category that theologians and believers have kind of just established that there is, that there's a double fulfillment. Um, my first question that I would ask is, really? Um, so I would want to look at, when, you, when you're talking about prophecy, you want to work very carefully through each individual text. And what would you want anybody to do if you made a promise? You'd want them to root themselves in the context of where you were at and who you were talking to and what you meant and what you didn't mean. And we should do that also, is we should spend a lot of time in the Old Testament prophet and we should make sure that um, we understand who he is talking about and because uh, there's one meaning. And so then when other items or other things come up in, the, uh, in further revelation, then we need to be very careful about, okay, now what does that mean? And, and my, my question would be, um, I'm not going to be very quick to grant a double meaning or a, a double fulfillment. Because for me, see, I just gave myself away, didn't I? For me, a double fulfillment, I, I don't know how to separate that away from a double meaning. Um, now, that's not to say that there's not a near and a far. Um, you know, where there's, uh, and this may be more of what you're thinking, that... Um, the Old Testament talks about Messiah coming and he reigns. And so you see this backdrop of judgment and, and Messiah reigning and he came. And they look like from the distance two mountains that are right up against each other, right? But when you go sideways, you find and look between that there was at least 2,000 years between. I wouldn't say that's double fulfillment. I would say there are near and far aspects in the one meaning that further revelation is now making clear to us, but does not override and change the meaning of the Old Testament. Um, so I don't know if that kind of gets at what you're talking about. Um, one meaning of a text. Let's talk about number four, harmony of Scripture. Even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, authors, the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so, or actually not so amazingly when you consider it's one divine author. Um, because the scripture was spoken by the God who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. You've ever had somebody say that to you? Oh, the Bible contradicts itself. What's the best question, what's the best thing you can say back to them? Where? And if you do, you will find out that what they're actually doing is they're repeating a soundbite. Most of the people. They won't even be able to, to take you to one place actually that they just know that that's what they think they should say. Um, but the Bible does not contradict itself. But however, there is a danger lurking in this principle that the scriptures never um, contradict themselves itself. But there's a danger lurking in this because of our mind, not because of scripture. We must avoid the practice of determining that um, what we believe based on one text and then forcing all of the other passages to harmonize with that one. And we were just talking about this in our small group out in the hall. Um, that view, uh, that, that approach leads to bad, even dishonest theology. In other words, where you can, so is, is God good or does he use evil in our lives and, and trouble and trial in our lives? Is he good or, and, and I'm, I'm setting you up by just even asking the question the way I'm asking it, right? That these two things are mutually exclusive. They can't both be true at the same time. How can God be good and yet him use, bring trial upon my life? I thought he was good. What's the problem with that thinking first? There's a whole host of things wrong with it, but what's the, what's the first thing? 
Yeah, exactly. My view of good means that that person who is good can never have any kind of trouble or trial associated with them. And the question that you would want to do, the thing you'd want to do is you'd want to go to Scripture and allow Scripture to determine what good is and also the place of trial and suffering and calamity. Jeremiah, Lamentations, right? uh, Job, my goodness, Job. What did Job do that was wrong? Okay? Do you have a category for the fact that a good God who is holy can, in a world filled with sin, orchestrate things in a divine way that even his righteous people would suffer? I hope you do have a category for that. Because your salvation depends upon you having a category for that. Because who was the most righteous man who ever lived? Did he deserve any of the suffering that came upon him? Oh, but how you and I benefit. How you and I benefit. That a good God would crush his son who did not deserve it. And yet that good God who crushed his son, did that good God compromise his holiness at all in doing so? No. Not a bit. So you see, opposing to us, opposing ideas in Scripture oftentimes get reconciled in the cross. Does God love sinners or hate sinners? Yes. Pick which one you want and be faithful to whatever text you're talking about. How do you know God loves and hates sinners? Go to the cross. Where's the evidence of his love for sinners at the cross? That's what we know, right? What mercy towards me? Where's the evidence of his hatred towards sinners? He's crushing his son in their place. So, think carefully about harmonization of Scripture. You would not want to... And this is what guys do. Um, God can only be a God of love. So I will, I'll either change all of the other passages where God is severe towards unbeliever or towards sin, and I'll neutralize all of them because I'm going to try to make all of those harmonize with this one idea. Or they'll just write those parts out of the Bible. Or erase them out, I should say. Right? So you have to let the harmony of Scripture determine its own rules for engagement. Not my idea of what harmonizes ideas. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Number five, a normal interpretation. We're going to recycle back through this again. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, harmony of Scripture. Sometimes what guys want to do to harmonize Scripture is they want to take one... There, there are two truths that seem to be opposed in their mind. In the mind of the guy. Not the mind of God, but in the mind of the believer. And he doesn't understand how those two poles can exist simultaneously. And so what he'll try to do, some Christians will take and say, well, I like the loved one. A lot. And so wherever it talks about God hating sin or sinners in like Psalm, uh, Psalm 5, Psalm 11, um, do I not hate those who, uh, I, I hate the wicked? I, God just, I mean, he just comes out and says, I hate them. And he'll change that and try to make that harmonize with this view of love. So that it actually doesn't say that God hates the sinner. So this interpretation that um, yes, Scripture never contradicts itself. The way that they're trying to harmonize it is the wrong way to harmonize it. The way to harmonize it is let both 
statements stand as true. That's harmony in God's mind. But we're trying to make them stand according to our harmony in our mind. And the only way that I can see that happening is by making one of them go away or become like the other one. And so that's where there's the danger lurking in this principle of harmonizing Scripture. That if you harmonize according to the way you think it should be harmonized, you're going to actually change the meaning of some passages so that it harmonizes with God's love. Does this make sense? So you have to be careful of that and, and watch carefully. And all of us, by the way, we, we carry it, uh, this around with us. And you'll, you'll find yourself thrilled by a doctrine taught in Scripture um, only to then come to another passage and go, oh, that's, that feels like that goes against what I thought this other passage. Have you ever done that as you read? Yeah, that's like a daily occurrence, right, um, for those of us who are honest. Um, so, you know, you're, you're constantly stretched on this and go, okay, now I either can operate within my own mind and make God have to conform to my mind and how that works, or I get one more time an opportunity to submit my mind to the mind of God in Scripture and have him help me. And guys, a lot of times, this is a, I mean, this is a lifetime process, is it not? I mean, you don't get clarity for this stuff like in the next 15 seconds sometimes. You know, you've got to like labor for months, weeks, years maybe of your life to get some of these things. Okay, so Scott, those are, those are matters of harmony of meaning. How about harmony of points of fact? Like within the gospel of the resurrection, whether one angel or two angels of the gospel, you're challenged. You're challenged on points of fact and not meaning within the within the scripture. People say, "Gee whiz, this scripture is so contradictory." What's the proper response to that? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> let me use a let me use an illustration, like just from maybe everyday type thing. Let's say there's a let's say there's a, a car accident on a corner, and there's people on all four corners standing there. And one guy says, these two cars, I mean, you should have seen what happened to them. It was crazy uh, what the one guy did, and there was another one, and the guy on the other side said, um, it was the worst three-car accident I've ever seen. Um, and, and, and next thing you know, there's a tow truck, and he's actually 23 cars away, or three tow trucks, Tom, right? 23 cars away. That's um, <laughs> Didn't make their that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Maybe there should be more, huh? Now, does that mean that one of the two is lying? Or is it very possible that uh, it, a very true story of what happened is primarily there were two that had a head on, and yeah, there was a residual third who was slamming on the brakes, but the one guy saw it and wanted to be clear in telling the truth of what actually caused it. And the other one is telling just as much the truth of what happened in terms of the totality. Of it. So, I mean, there's a category. We have a category for things like that where one person would write as a witness, uh, there was an angel. And another witness would say there were two angels. And it doesn't mean that one of them is true and the other one's telling a lie. It means that um, from where they saw, there, there evidently were, we know, a total of two angels at least. What if there were more angels? But what God revealed to us through the witnesses were the ones who wrote in a way that was important to tell us what we needed to know. So um, I think there's a cat. I think we have a category for that kind of communication, and but we're not willing to grant God that same kind of courtesy of of interpretation uh, on facts. 
um, oftentimes. I think a lot of your uh, issues like that that skeptics will br br bring up can be solved in, in ways like that, I think. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that was a thought that occurred to me. That, thank you. The explanation you gave is the one that occurred to me. And, and I, suppose, <coughs> I suppose that skeptics, uh, scoffers would say, hey, that's not credible, man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, our, our courts find credibility in that kind of testimony all the time. So whatever it is, God had it written that way absolutely on purpose. Mm -hmm. It was not an accident. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, too, the issue is not the issue. Yeah. Uh, God, in how he will cover the ears and how he closes his eyes, I don't know, but the, the issue to salvation is figuring out the number of angels and, and what this dear person needs to know. So what do you say about that? And uh, it, it's tough, because I've had that, and that exact, what you lay forward, I've had that, that the exact story of why somebody would not choose to believe in a living Savior. And, uh, you know, I'm all I can do is sow seeds and squirt water and yeah. God can change somebody's life. Yeah. But it, it is, for somebody that does not want to believe, that is just an ignorant thought. It really is. Yeah, that, that, and that's, that's interesting. I mean, I would, I, maybe one way to turn it on its head kind of for them is, is say, really? That's what the stumbling block is for you? Because I, I would have thought it was a carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be holy and to be an innocent man, to actually be divine. And, and actually then God the Father crucifying him in the place of those that he would save and then raising him from the dead. I thought that would have been the issue for you. Not whether there's one or two angels. You know, and because that, then you're really getting to, you know, do they have a, are they even softened to consider those kinds of things? And, um, Well, I don't know about that. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Not that kind of doctrine. We can use that in almost any situation to witness the truth of the gospel. Someone could bring up something. I think of the thing my dad brings up, and he's 82 years old and getting senile, but things that his dad did to him when he was 12 to, to try to teach him the truth and the debate. Mm. And that's what you're focusing on when yeah. the truth is. Yeah. You know, it's almost like to, for them that's like a huge obstacle. And you're like, gosh, you know, actually that's 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 an anthill compared to this one. You, you think you've got to get over how many angels there were? You've got to get over the fact that God became flesh and suffered as a righteous man in the place of unrighteous in order to bring us to God through his atonement. That's, you got to get over that one, man. Let's focus on that. Let's talk about that one. What, what are your issues with that? You know. Uh, number five, normal interpretation. If you want to on this one, you could write down again um, LGH, literal, grammatical, historical, or you can write out the sentence again, the words in relationship to one another in their context. Uh, we're just going to kind of resummarize it here. This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we would consider normal for any other important document. 
When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally, fetches a new globe and a stepladder. That's normal interpretation, and we need to read our Bibles that way too. Okay, we're, we're in one sense, this is, an ex- this is the most exalted book ever, ever, ever that man will ever know. We should treat it um, in, in many ways completely differently than we treat any other kind of book. And yet on another level, when it comes to interpretation, we should treat it no differently than we do any other kind of language or any other collection of words. Normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. One of the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation is under um, assault these days. has been. It's always been under assault ever since... Um, ever since it was clarified and packaged and communicated the way it is. But it's under assault today because literal to some people means not what I told you it means in terms of um, the words. Literal to them means rigid, inflexible. Uh, If you you don't interpret the Bible literally, do you? I would say, do you want me to interpret your words that way? I think you do. You want me to take the words at face value. Um, for, but for them, literal means inflexible. So that if you say in your communication that, um, well, let me just use Jesus' example that he uses here. You know, that, that if you would say, I am the door. Um, you have a category in your literal approach to language. You have a category for that kind of metaphor. Literal means that you have a category for metaphorical types of meanings, right? Yes. yes. Right? <laughs> that was like, like almost heavenly coming down. Can you do that, that again? When do I need to call you again for that? That's awesome. Um, so normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. Uh, we do this all the time. You don't have to, in your conversation with people, when you're about to use a figure of speech, um, uh, what, what would be a figure of speech um, that you could use in everyday language uh, communication? Um, uh, I, I, uh, I've heard that a million times. You don't have to announce before you use it in your language, okay, I'm going to depart now from literal a use of words, and I'm going to throw in um, um, uh, a metaphor. I'm going to throw in uh, exaggeration for the purpose of emphasis. Okay, are you ready for that? Because I just want to, I'm letting you know I'm leaving literal language for this now. Here it comes. I've heard that a million times. You don't have to announce it, do you? Why? Because your literal approach to language, the normal sense of words used, you allow for that. You understand. Your mind has the ability to go, oh, a million times. They've heard that a million times. He must have counted. A, no, wait a minute. He didn't do it. He didn't count a million times. He's pulling my leg a little bit, and I get the point. That was really an effective use. So we don't, I mean, it just happens intuitively for us, right? But yet when we come to God's word, oh, no, you take God's word literally? What a fool you are. I mean, to me, it just, this just drives me nuts um, because we grant this to one another just like that without even having to announce it. God, though, he better not do it at all or 
you better not have that approach to language uh, towards God's word at all. It, it's, it's just, like I said, drives me nuts. We'll move on. Scott, yeah. Um, even with doing the normal interpretation of LPH, folks still may come to a different conclusion about the text, though. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Okay. Um, yeah. So we do need to have, like, a, a category for because this person disagrees with my interpretation of the text does not <coughs> Oh yeah, I have, we have, I mean, you can have your dearest, closest minded brother who loves literal grammatical historical as much as you do, maybe more than you do, and he takes a different view on a passage than you do. In heaven, how many different views on the same passage are there? One. Yeah. Um, Are both of you right? Now? No. Um, Does that mean because you there is the possibility that there's one of you is wrong and one of you is right. Does that mean that um, you can't be certain and you can't act with conviction? No. But it means you, there's a degree of humility that needs to be present. Right? So, um, yeah. The, yes. Who had a question? Matt. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think you're at one level. I want you to understand I, that. Yes, I think there, it's that clear. I mean, at another level, what I want you to do is have a, a degree of patience and compassion towards people who have not thought it through all of the, as far as they needed to, and they're repeating sound bites from what they've heard other Christians say, and. Um, so somebody would, might say to you, oh, you interpret the Bible literally? Well, that's foolish. Jesus isn't a door when he says that. Um, I wouldn't want to um, assume the worst about them. I would want to find out about, okay, well, what do you mean when you say that? Um, I would want to talk with them because not everybody is... It's like the difference between that academic, neo-Orthodox way of interpreting the reader response method in the, the kind of the popular version, um, they're related, but I wouldn't want to assume that everybody who sits around as, as Christians on a Friday night hanging out and a passage comes up in the conversation and, and they start going, oh, what it means to me is and what it means to me. I wouldn't want to assume that they're all thinking and coming from the same presuppositions that the academicians are who are off their rockers theologically. So you want to, yes, if, I, think it's, I think these things in many ways are that clear but just you just be careful with people and patient with people and, and slow with them. Um, anything else before we continue? Kyle. Especially like with the kind of literal, like we're talking about the door, especially with the revelation where, like how much effort do you put into saying, is this literal or is this figure of speech? And like Revelation 1, it's like, should I try to look at each one of these pictures of Jesus and really get into it or just more yeah. take the broad theme and stop there? Let, let's, let me go through this next paragraph because I think it'll, it'll speak to that a little bit. Um, okay, so the for example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. And we do that instantly with one another. 
right? When we speak that way. Um, Next paragraph. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it is a good policy to begin with the literal. What is a door? If Jesus says, I am the door, it would be good to think, okay, what is a door? Because he is making a resemblance. He's trying to make himself resemble in some way a door. But what purpose does a door serve? Having asked that, then we ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the figure. Okay? Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. So even when you know that it's a metaphor, you don't just throw out, you do your best to examine what is the literal meaning of a door and apply it to the figurative side. Um, so, so again, your, your normal interpretation, it allows for the place of metaphor. It allows for that. But what gets to determine um, what that metaphor means? Okay, let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about a, a, you say to your son, son, when I was your age, my life was a train wreck. Okay? So your, your 17-year-old son says, here's you say that. Who gets to determine what you mean with that metaphor? You do. Where's the controlling line of authority? In the author, in his words, not in what your son thinks it means. So you would have to expand on that, or he would ask you questions. Dad, what do you mean your life was a train wreck? So even when metaphor is used, you are conscribed, you are, you are, you are confined to what the author meant with that. So even the metaphor, even though the metaphor moves away from a literal meaning, it doesn't move out of the context determined by the writer. Okay? So what, what I want to try to do with these kinds of things all the time is, is go back and forth from the Bible to the way that we use language, the way we use language back to the Bible, because we just do this intuitively with one another, but we won't do it with God's word. Now, what does that tell you about our condition spiritually? What's going on? We'll let each of us speak and be free in these things, but when it comes to God, I can find all kinds of obstacles to make him jump over in his communication. And I'll do it to you the minute your authority contradicts mine. I mean, we're just these little kings running around. We're all okay as long as your kingdom doesn't clash mine, in our words. But when you get the king of kings, and he's spoken, I got issues. And I, I don't even have to work at them. I, they're just there. Um, so, um, what do you do like in a book like you know, Revelation? I, I think you do what you do in all your other books. Um, I think you, you, you do your best, and I think at, at points where you, you don't understand, you say, I don't understand. Um, and, but you do your best to take it in a literal sense. What, what, even, even when you're reading poetry, um, like any of the, the examples, uh, when, when God says, um, you know, your judgments are sweeter than honey, you don't look at that and go, I have no idea what he meant because he's using some kind of flowery language, right? I mean, nobody does that. We understand what he meant. And um, so even in poetry, when we, we go to the, 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 the picturesque way of talking, we still have a literal approach to what it means. Sweet in their day. Gosh, in their day, it's not like you could go buy a candy bar. You came across honey, and that was like a gold mine. 
and it was a real treat to have, so much so that you'd put your hand into a lion and scrape it out of your Samson, right? Um, it, it was a real precious thing. And, and so to think of God's judgments as sweeter than that, uh, that comes alive with me. We don't say, you know what, there's actually um, a new way to interpret that because it's not, um, it's not normal use of language. Uh, it's its own special use, and so we're not going to use a literal grammatical historical approach to it anymore. We're going to use a um, metaphorical way. No, we don't even do that. But, but, in, but with Old Testament prophecy and with revelation, we've come up with new categories of, and there, there, there are different genres. Okay, that's the, 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 the technical words, G-E-N-R-E. There are different genres. But when you switch from one genre to another, you don't switch and put a different hermeneutical key in. There's one hermeneutical key. And when you're in reading poetry, you don't abandon and go, oh my goodness, I, I don't even know how to interpret this. What am I going to do? It's poetry. Or it's wisdom literature. What am I going to do? I have no idea. But we do that. It's apocalyptic? Well, who says it's apocalyptic? Well, Jesus says it's apocalyptic. It's, revel it's the revealing of, of, of Jesus. But... We have listened to the sound bites of theologians all around us who have said, oh, you can't interpret Revelation in a literal, grammatical, historical way. I don't know any other way to interpret words than that. And if it, and if it doesn't, if the controlling line of authority is not inside Revelation, but outside in a different way to interpret, whose way should I, who, who has the key? Number one, who said that the key is outside of the text. Did God say that? Where did he say that? Does he say it in the words? Go outside my word and find the key over here with this guy, that group, that system. Who said that? Uh, people do this with um, Genesis 1. Um, oh, well, you can't take Genesis 1 literally. You know why? I'll tell you why. You're going to be really relieved to hear this. You can't take Genesis 1 literally because it's saga. Doesn't that sound good? I sound really smart when I say it. It's saga. It's a kind of genre called saga. And you can't take it literally. Now, where's my controlling line of authority? Who determined what that line of authority was? Or, um, what's the other word they use for it? Saga. I wrote it down in here. Hold on one second. What did you say? Oh, exalted prose. Doesn't that sound good? It is, it is such, Genesis 1 is, is such exalted prose. When does it become not as exalted prose? Genesis 4? Is not all of God's revelation exalted prose? So, I mean... Theologians, this, like this all comes from inside our camp, and some of them might be wolves in sheep's clothing. But we have allowed ourselves to, from the outside of Scripture, say, let me tell you what category the Scripture is in so you know which hermeneutical key to use. Guys, run from that. Run from that. Don't buy that stuff. Stay in the words, and if it sounds like he's getting flowery, if you get to Song of Solomon in your reading, um, and it, that's a little different than what I've seen before. You're not going to be sitting there going, oh my goodness, I don't have the wrong key. I'm trying to use my Buick key to get into a BMW, and it's just not working. 
Um, it, that's not the way it works. That's not the way language works. And I'm beating a dead horse now. So I wish the horse was dead. Um, number six, context. You can see by the, how long this one is that this is important. One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding Bible interpretation is context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. This means that a text of scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in relationship to the words around it. So L, G, H, we're talking about the H part now, the context. In fact, no other context bears as much weight on the meaning than those immediate words. So you're reading 2 Peter 1. No, 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 let's use 2 Peter 3. You're reading 2 Peter 3. I don't know why I switched to that in my mind. Chapter 3 sounded more fun. 2 Peter 3. You're reading 2 Peter 3, and you're trying to figure out what he means that a thousand years the Lord is like a... What is that? Watch for this. Have you ever... You've, you've done this. I know you've done this. Somebody will say, what does 2 Peter 3 mean? And you'll go, oh yeah, let me tell you what that means. Turn to, a, turn to Daniel... Check. Okay, now what did I just do? I'm telling you what was on this page on the basis of what was on this page. Now, Scripture is in harmony with itself. Uh, I'm not going to find anything that contradicts that anywhere else. But what would be the wiser thing to do? Stay in the context. Don't leave that context. Don't try to immediately turn away to another passage of Scripture, even though it's all inspired, inerrant, infallible, even though it all is that way. Don't turn away quickly. Force yourself to stay there. Make somebody hold one side and the other, and, and you can't turn the page. And just stay there as long as you can to try to exhaust that meaning that you can that is there. Um, my, my friend who wrote this, we, we used to joke about this in college. What's your favorite verse? Philippians 2, 3a. What is it? Do nothing. <laughs> Do nothing. It's a great, great motto for a guy in college. Is that a justification for laziness? No. The rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. When the immediate words surrounding that context of do nothing are considered, it's clear that Paul was not condoning laziness, right? There's another one we did when we got to Philippians 4. Be anxious. It's a command. Did you know that? Philippians 4, 6, A, says be anxious. Mm, for nothing, right? Uh, those, are, those are ridiculous examples, but we do that on a, on a that's a, what I would call a micro scale, but we do that on a, on a macro scale in ways by quoting only a portion of a text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text. Not considering the context would have led us to actually disobey God if we applied our interpretation, so to speak. Uh, he gives a great example here uh, in Isaiah 1. I'll let you guys look at it on your own. But if you were to drop into Isaiah 1.10 and land at 1.10, you would see that Isaiah is addressing Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you were then to write, and this is so great, D-Rob, this is like perfect setup for a high school assignment. Tell me what Isaiah 1.10 means. Uh, Isaiah's writing to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is the story back in Genesis where uh, Lot lived in blah, 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 blah. So Isaiah is, is addressing them. Hand that in. And then what you would do is read the, all of chapter 1, and he says basically there Jerusalem is like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not even talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He is using that to, uh, in, a, in a metaphorical way to refer to Jerusalem. So uh, consider your context. Your context determines the meaning. You can take words that are, have very specific meaning like Sodom and Gomorrah and, and you know exactly what that 
you know, puts in your mind in terms of where in the Bible and what the story is. And the Bible can actually be using them to describe maybe the Jewish people in Jerusalem pre-exile. 1,400 years later, I think he says, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it means something different, right? It has a different range of meaning. So context is important. Um, he has some basic rules there for you. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is awesome. This is a great one, right? You guys know this one. Uh, 29, 11 is a favorite soundbite for Christian posters and calendars. God, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Uh, who's he writing to there? Not all believers of all time. The you does not mean y'all Christians and believers who have ever lived, ever. He's writing to specifically Jews who are in the exile. And right before that, God says, 70 years you're going to do this, but I have plans for your welfare. He's writing to the Jews who are in exile. That is not a plan for you. And you know what? If it was, poor Jeremiah, because it wasn't true for him. He suffered greatly. Lots of calamity. Poor Job. Didn't apply to him. Um, poor Paul, in many ways, on this earth, was the scum of the earth. What kind of welfare and plans for the future was that? Um, it's often quoted as a general promise to all believers. Uh, you can see that it's not a, even just with a cursory reading. Can I tell you one that I did one time? I was trying to encourage um, my wife's cousin um, who was going through a really difficult time. And so I, I went to Second Chronicles. Um, so I remember reading this re- recently um, back then. It was Chronicles, Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely hit. Oh man, how encouraging that would be for her. And so I'm writing her this letter to encourage her. And then my eyes glance back down at verse 9b. You have acted foolishly in this. Hmm. How am I going to do that? Let's see. Second Chronicles 16.9a. A only, not B. Don't look at B. If you ever read this, don't look at B. I'm not applying B to you. I'm applying A to you. Where is that controlling line of authority again? All right. Right? How about Habakkuk? Uh, you remember that book? It's actually in the, in the Old Testament. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1. This actually happened in our church in children's ministry long, long ago. We wanted to teach the children about God being holy and his view towards sin. So here's Habakkuk 1.13. A. A. Don't look at B. Just A. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. That's really helpful to establish that God is holy, right? But what Habakkuk is going through as he's watching um, the Babylonians carry off his people is he is saying, here's the full set, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? But see, that's a little bit more difficult to explain to a three-year-old. But we just like the A part. Like your context, you need the whole thing. Uh, so what is Habakkuk doing there? By the chap- oh, I love this chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the answer. So he kind of rambles and he, he, he gets his rant out and he sets out his complaint. And then this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he, God, will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. 
What does he know? I'm not thinking rightly about this, but I've got to, I'm complaining. I'm just pouring it out. God, I, I have a category for you being holy, but not being holy in a way where you would allow the Babylonians, who are unrighteous people, to come in and take us and move us out. That doesn't com- these two things cannot be harmonized in my mind. But I'll wait, and I'll watch, and I'll see how he reproves me. That's, that's good thinking. That's good thinking. He's going to submit his mind to him at the end. What, uh, what do you do with the New Testament authors that quote portions of Old Testament, um, especially if they're not trying to necessarily explain <coughs> the passage? Like, yeah. It seems that it would give leeway to somewhat of like what you're talking about, though. Like, I can use portions of my Bible to try to illustrate a point. This year I made a decision um, to only do two build lessons on uh, hermeneutics. In, in the past years, I've done like three or four, and I, I spend a whole time addressing New Testament use of the Old Testament. Um, because, um, number one, for me, it's just it's fascinating, and it's really hard. So I'll give you a short answer that um, we can talk about at another time. If the only way a New Testament author can use an Old Testament passage is that he is explaining its meaning, then we are in big trouble with the New Testament use of the Old Testament because it looks like they're doing something completely different with that original meaning in in many cases. However, if there is a legitimate category for a New Testament author to be thinking biblical ideas from the Old Testament and being influenced by them uh, and then writing new scripture, influenced by that old one, taking even phraseology and words and sentences and clauses from the Old Testament, and now they're writing a new piece of revelation here in the New Testament. I have, I have a category for that, for that. In fact, I think that's what most of the New Testament authors are doing with the Old Testament, is they're not saying, now look, let me explain to you what David meant in um, Psalm 68. Let me, Peter did not say, let me now give you commentary on Joel chapter 2. He quoted an extensive, extensive portion of Joel 2 without saying, um, that I'm now giving you the meaning of it, which I know, by the way, if you read Joel 2, guys, old Jews, that's not what it meant back then. It has a new meaning now. See, he's, he's quoting that in a way that is, it, it can't be him giving the, an explanation of that passage. He is quoting it for another purpose, which is to say that Holy Spirit who is going to come in that day of judgment, that day of the Lord, this is that Spirit who made all of these promises, but he has come. That Spirit has come. He's not saying it's all fulfilled in Joel 2 because that's like nations being crushed, Israel being brought back to the land, being restored, the Edenic type of conditions in Israel, the land being restored in fruitfulness, and then the sky turning, every, all the changes taking place. So, um, anyway, there's, there's a use of the, Old Test, of, of the Old Testament by the New Testament authors that is not an explanation or an interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, so they can, Paul did this all the time. I mean, he was influenced by the Bible, his Old Testament. And so he could throw, and by the way, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping around in my mind. Who determined what was the Old Testament quote in your New Testament English? 
He did? How do you know when he started quoting it? Where does the quote begin? Who determined that? I'll tell you who did. For me, the NAS committee did. And they put it into all capital letters. When you go to the Greek, is it, all, is it in all capital letters, the original? So it's an, it's an interpretive decision made by the translation committees for the ESV, the, the NAS, that, oh, I think the quote starts here. Well, wait a minute, what if he's not even quoting it for the purpose of explaining it? What if he's influenced by the biblical thought of it, but he's writing new scripture? Do we, like, as believers, have that category? No, because you know why? It's an issue of inspiration for the New Testament writer, and it's not an issue of interpretation. He's not interpreting that, and therefore, the, the whole idea of an apostolic hermeneutic terrifies me. That the apostles had a way of interpreting the Old Testament, and so, you can do it too. Except I'm not inspired. And they're writing texts of Scripture, and they knew they were writing texts of Scripture, and so it's not, a, it's not something that I can repeat. Um, it's an issue of inspiration. What God is, it's an interesting thing. What God is doing is he's letting men who are inspired by his Holy Spirit grab biblical ideas and phraseology from his other inspired text, bring it into their words, and write new scripture. That stands with its own unique meaning, borrowing from some of this language without rewriting the meaning of that meaning. Now, that gets a little thick and heavy, and we could walk through that. I could give you examples from Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6. Um, I could show you from uh, what I think Peter's doing in, in Acts 2 with Joel, um, but that would be for a whole other time. Did you have a question, Dave? Not a question. It just extends. But isn't that what the Puritans did? Some of the things that I've read, they were so dead blind. They had such a yeah. deep knowledge of God's Word that they would... Yeah, and and there, I think there's a there's there's a level at which that uh, can be helpful and which it can be dangerous. Um, I'm trying to think of it. I wish I could. can you think of an example of one that they, that you've read where a Puritan did that because. Um, they had a way of taking a biblical idea and turning it in their explanation, not to say the scripture actually means this, but to, sh- to illustrate a point. Um, does he have it in there? Um, where they were so biblical in their thinking that they would uh, just take these turns of phrases in the Old Testament and, 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 and do something interesting with it without saying that's what that passage means. They weren't trying to quote that passage and interpret it. They were just using it to make their point in a way... Um, I think that's what you're trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah they, they do that. And I think the New Testament writers were doing that far more than we think. Um, so uh, let, let's keep pressing on here so we can make sure we get... Let's go to number seven, progressive revelation. Right at the, on this one, after number seven, right left to right. Left to right. Left to right, progressive revelation. God revealed his truth over an extended period of time, right? You guys understand this? Over 1,500 years, over 30 different authors. Um, he didn't write it all at once. 
It came in pieces and portions. God was willing to let it come in stages as it was written. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. There's a great quote from um, the New Testament on progressive revelation. The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation. Guys, move from left to right for you this way, right? Left to right. Um, And just because newer ideas came in the New Testament doesn't mean that you can assume that they all knew that back here. And you can take this meaning and import it all the way back into there. You can't. You have to be patient hermeneutically like God was patient revealing Scripture. Work from left and go to right. In fact, I'll give you, the, 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 to me, what is the clearest example. Um, you cannot find the church in the Old Testament. You cannot. Even though it came as a revelation later, you can't go back and call Israel the church. You can't call any group of believers before Israel the church. Why? uh, Ephesians 3 again. Um, Let me just read this to you. I'll I'll tell you which ones to write down, just for the sake of time. Just write down Ephesians 3, 1 down through, I don't know, let's just say 10. 3, 1 to 10. Ephesians 3, 1 to 10. You've heard the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What? What is this thing that was not revealed before, but now is revealed? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister. He goes on and talks about this is the church. So, it wasn't revealed before. So you can't take what has now been revealed and say, well, actually, Isaiah is talking about the church. No, he's not. He had no idea it was coming. It was a mystery hidden in God that did not come. So interpret what Isaiah means and then move to your, wait, yeah, to your right. Like backwards, left to right. Okay. All right. Um, he gives you some other examples here. Uh, by the way, let me give you this example um, from, the, from the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. If you, if you were just going to start reading Luke 1, do you know what you would have to assume? Do you know what the writer, what Luke assumes you know? Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. Huh. What do he means by that? Oh, I know what he means. I, in my hometown where I grew up, my best friend was Catholic, and I would go to his Catholic school sometimes and... And, and help him because he helped the custodian. And I saw the priest there. Oh, wow, they had priests like that. That's cool. Okay, so there was a priest guy. His name was uh, Aaron. Oh, and Aaron is his name. Who's Aaron? I have no idea who his wife's from the daughters of Aaron. Um, commandments and requirements of the Lord, verse 6. Um, uh, there's a temple mentioned in verse 9, and there's angels in verse 11, an angel in verse 11. Sons of Israel, and then there's this guy named Elijah down in verse 17. Um, look, what does that assume that you know? What does Luke assume that you need to have an understanding? Everything to the left of it, right? 
um, he assumes a knowledge that ranges from Exodus all the way to Elijah, which is King Ahab days in 1 Kings 17. He, he assumes an awareness of it. So if anything, if you're going to interpret, interpret the New Testament, you need to interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, not the other way around. You don't interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You don't read everything that's in the New Testament back on the Old Testament. You do it just the opposite. You read the Old Testament and you, you then move into the New Testament and interpret it in light of it. Um, interpretation and application number eight. There is a difference. Guys, here's one of the most important things, and this is what we talked about earlier, that we could just be sloppy with our meanings of words. Interpretation finds the meaning. If you take those two words, interpretation finds the meaning, and you circle both of them and kind of draw a line together, interpretation is, is meaning. You're trying to find the meaning of the text. Okay, It's rooted in its historical situation. The application is the various ways that one meaning that one meaning can be lived out today uh, my friend gives an example of love one another in, in his text here um, drop down to a few paragraphs interpretation and application must always be kept separate they must always be kept separate um, don't botch the two up when, when people sit around and they say well what that text means to me I think what they mean is the way that I would apply that text to my life is and so I think that a lot of times Christians are just, they're well-meaning, but they just don't, they haven't thought carefully about what those two different words mean. And so when you hear somebody say that, don't go after them with a club and say, heretic, you know, that's reader response theory, neo-orthodoxism. Don't do that. Go say, now do you mean, are you trying to tell me that what you think you should do with that passage is what Moses was writing and intending for Israel? Is, is that what you mean? Um, or are you saying how you would apply it? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying how I'd apply it. Okay, well then we need to say this is how this verse applies to me, not means to me, okay? There's just a, a sloppiness that can be there. Um, Joel gives some good examples here. Uh, go on to verse, uh, verse number nine, grammar and syntax. What, what part of LGH is this? The G, okay? Um, pay attention to the grammar and syntax. This is where... Our, our American education system has failed us miserably, guys. If you want to be a serious Bible student, you're going to have to know what nouns and subjects and prepositional phrases are. You're going to need to know what a main clause is. And you're going to need to know what a, a, a subordinate clause is. Do you hear me when I, like when I teach, I tell you the main ideas in the main clause? Do you hear me ever say that on a Sunday? I do that on purpose because I want you to know that the main ideas, when you communicate with languages, you, you communicate the main idea through the main verb. Everything else is subordinate to that, either leading up to it to introduce it or afterwards de defining it and declaring it or uh, describing it. Um, grammar means something, um, and it, it's important. And by the way, if you'll get the booklet, the PDF that uh, I'll send to you if you email me or Allie, the whole book works through a bunch of really basic grammar stuff. It's great. It's a great tool to use if you want to sharpen your, your uh, mind on that. And you won't be diagramming uh, Jane and Spot and Dick. Jane and Dick and whatever the dog's name. You aren't going to be diagramming verses or words, sentences like that. You're actually going to be in Scripture. Joel provides Scriptures for you to use. That's really helpful. Okay, Historical appropriateness. Let me give you just some uh, ideas here that you can think about. Um, the worst thing, um, 
the worst thing you could do for historical appropriateness is take your understanding of a word today and when you see that word in the Bible, go, oh my goodness, that's what that means. Example, American version of slavery. The way that we understand slaves in our day, in our culture, even though it was 100 plus years ago. Um, if you read your understanding of that kind of slavery, every time you see it in the New Testament, you are going to be thrown for a loop because how on earth could Paul not want to eradicate slavery but actually tell slaves how to live as slaves? Well, if he has a different, and if slave had a different range of meaning in first century Roman world, then you might have a category for telling somebody who had actually on purpose sold themselves into slavery because they could make a better living. Not as a slave like they were in the early century. Now, there was that kind of slavery too in the Roman world. Um, but don't take your idea of what a word means and import it into the context that's not historically appropriate. Um, I'll give you another example. Rick Warren uh, in the spring of 09, I, I read something that he was talking about how to do short-term missions. Uh, and he, he, in teaching on how to do short-term missions, he said that modern-day missions has made a mess of things in other churches across the world. And I would completely and totally agree. We have. And, and he says the reason that we've made a mess of things is because we throw money at situations and at churches, these little impoverished areas of the world, and we think as Americans, we'll just come in, we'll give them money, and we'll give them buildings, and it will solve all their problems, and it ends up making it more of a mess than it actually ends up helping them. And he justified all of this from Luke 10, verse 4, where Jesus said, carry no money belt. You see? What, where's the controlling line of authority? In what Jesus actually said, or in his historical, his own historical situation, where he sees that money made a mess? Well, that must be what Jesus said. The only problem is, it also says in that same verse, to take no shoes. He didn't mention anything about that. And it also says, greet no one on the way. He didn't apply that either. So historical appropriateness, had to be very careful with that. Um, word study is important. Um, I'll give you words. Almost every word that we ever use has a range of meaning. Uh, when I say the word beat, there's probably five different ideas in our minds right now. Because you don't know what I mean with the word beat. I'll, I'll narrow it down. B-E-A-T. You still have no idea what I mean, yet, because if you're going to let the controlling line of authority be where it is, I have to determine um, what that meaning is, and it has to do um, with what I'd like to do with one of the chickens that my daughter has right now. I'd like to beat it. Okay. Yeah, we have chickens. That's another story for another time. Uh, so, word studies have, a, words have a range of meaning. Um, the words that don't have a range of meaning are the ones that are rigid and they never change. Those kinds of words are, are called technical terms where it, whenever you see it, it only means one word. I can't think of very many words that are like that in Scripture where it has only one meaning and one meaning only. The only one I can think of, I don't know, Ben, you can help me or anybody else. The, the one word that I think always means what it always means is the word Israel. I, I don't know when Israel is used in a term and it actually doesn't mean the national people of Israel. 
Now, if you want to go to Galatians 6 and talk about that, I'd be more than happy to arm wrestle with you on that one. So um, we can talk about that. But anyway, there's not very many technical terms like that that are rigid and don't have multiple meanings. Number 12, lastly, can you tell we're in a hurry? Checking principle. It's good for you uh, as a student of Scripture to check your understanding against other interpretations. Guys, there's a reason that number 12 is number 12 and not number 1. Here's what a lot of guys end up doing when they're going to go study Scripture. They go, they pull their commentaries off, they pile them up on their desk, or they spread them all out, or they have their iPad now open, and they open five different Logos windows, and they've got all of their commentaries out, and I'm going to study commentaries and not Scripture. And that's what guys do first, because they think they need to go to what the big heads thought first. And what we're saying is, don't do that first. Put it aside, examine the words in their relationship to one another, the best that you can understand the setting in which they were spoken. Do as, spend as much time there doing that all by yourself, the best that you can, and then when you're all done, what? Go grab a commentary, open it up, and find out what Calvin said. Find out what MacArthur said. And, and I like, when, when I study, I like taking guys who are from a range of different eras in writing in their commentaries. So I like MacArthur because he's in this age that I live. Um, I like Lenski, who lived less than 100 years ago and was kind of of a fundamentalist era as a Lutheran, evangelical quasi... I don't know what he is. Um, get him near water and he's really weird. He'll always talk about baptism in a funny way. But he's excellent in observing the original language. And then I like to go to a guy like Calvin who was living at a time when that when the church was going through great upheaval, and he was turning to the Word of God to try to figure out what makes sense of life and church. And I love that because he sees his Bible from an angle that I don't see my Bible. So I like to study when I do check. I like to study and check through guys who lived at different eras because it can turn me uh, to look at something that I didn't look at because I wasn't provoked in the same way he was provoked. Um, checking principle. Good to check yourself, but do it at the end. Now, lastly, for those of you guys who are faithful in build, you've, you've been here faithful in your attendance, you've been faithful in your doing your homework and stuff like that, I want to encourage you to consider H3. And I'll have Smed here in two weeks, and he'll talk to you more about H3. Um, but I want, to, I want you to understand what the, what the elders are looking for in regards to H3. Um, we're looking for a certain kind of man to be in that group. Because what we want to do is we want to have a certain kind of man be equipped theologically and equipped to study and teach God's Word. And the kind of man that we're looking for is a man who has disciplined his heart well, who's disciplined his, house, he's disciplined in his approach to his household, and he's disciplined in his approach um, to ministry. He's got the build disciplines in a uh, regular practice in his life. We're not asking him to be perfect because there is nobody here who's perfect in these disciplines. But that's what we're looking for. We're encouraging you to think about that. So as the summer comes and we get into the summer, I want you to be thinking about H3. Um, and uh, guys get into H3 uh, with an elder um, recommendation. And so if that's something that you would like to do, um, talk to me, talk to the elder who's maybe it was in your small group. Um, or discussion group or any one of us and just say, hey, do you think I'd be a good candidate for H3? 
Um, and we would love to look at your attendance, look at the way that you're just growing as a man. Um, attendance doesn't measure everything by any means. A guy can come every single time and not be practicing any of this. That would not be the right kind of man. Uh, a guy can miss several meetings of build, but be the right kind of guy. But we're just going to we just want to talk and have a conversation with you about that. You understand what I'm saying? Because what we're more interested in is a certain kind of man to be there that we can equip theologically, okay? And to help train study the Word of God well. So whatever we talked about here, SMED will take and do a hundred times over in H3. And you'll actually apply it to a passage of Scripture that you will end up teaching uh, in H3. So any questions or thoughts or comments as we finish up here? Oh, man, I went late. I'm sorry, guys. Please forgive me for that. Let me pray. I'll ask God for forgiveness later for keeping you longer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and their willingness to stay a few minutes later. I pray, God, that you would bless their interpretation of your word as they read. They would think carefully. They would read carefully. They would love your word. They would want to know what your meaning is and that the controlling line of authority for the meaning would be rooted in your words on the page before them. So, Lord, bless their pursuit of you in your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.